The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. IJM is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free. If you would like to support the work of IJM and support The New Activist, please go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and fill out the form that you see there. It will bring life-changing legislation to the over 40 million slaves in the world today. This is The New Activist. My name is Eddie, and I am really grateful that you are here. You are listening to, right now, our guest on the show today, Reverend Seku. He is a noted activist, theologian, author, filmmaker, and musician, and he recently released his latest album, which you will hear snippets of throughout the show. It is titled In Times Like These. Very appropriate. In addition, he was a visiting scholar at Stanford University in the Martin Luther King Education Research Institute at the time of Michael Brown's killing, and he traveled to Ferguson in August of 2014 to be a part of what was happening there. As a result, he was arrested multiple times during the Ferguson uprising. Fast forward to this past summer, Reverend Seku was on the front lines of the counter-protest that happened in Charlottesville. We actually got connected with each other through Seth Wispaway, who is on our very first show of this season. If you haven't listened to that episode, I would take a moment and listen to that one because it really walks through beat by beat what happened in Charlottesville this past summer. But Reverend Seiko is going to give us sort of a different perspective of where he was coming from and what he was thinking about and what his experience was like. On top of all of that, the Reverend studied philosophy at the New School, systematic theology at Union Theological Seminary, and religion at Harvard University. And I tell you those things first because they are accomplishments in and of themselves. But also, I've listened to this interview now four times, and every single time I find myself understanding something new, being challenged by something new, and having to look up a word that he said. By the way, machination means a scheming or crafty action intended to accomplish something usually evil. <laughs> right? This is going to be a deep conversation, but I hope that you will lean in because it is worth listening to and is worth your time. And there are a couple of poignant moments in it that, for me at least, were worth the price of admission. With that being said, here is the conversation that I got to have with Reverend Seku. Hey, dear brother, how are you? Good, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, you have an insane bio, and I was reading it, and I was both inspired by reading your bio, but also like a little bit just tired for you. You do a lot. Activist, theologian, author, documentary filmmaker, and musician. Could you sum up for me what you feel like all of this this work is about? I mean, ultimately, my highest uh, aspiration uh, is to be an artist. Hmm. And so whether I'm making films or doing theology or music or writing or preaching, I try to approach it with the uh, the sensibilities of an artist, which is about, uh, as Baldwin says, maintaining my own integrity Hmm. as it relates to that which uh, I produce and share with the world. How how do you feel about being 
interviewed about your music because for as personal as it is, there's still like a job to it, right? Somebody's going to be, people are just chatting you up about the new album and asking you a line at a time, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? How does it ring for you to do something so personal yet have to put it out there in the public space for consumption? It's a, it's, for me, it's a gift. So I don't, I don't experience it as something that is um, a burden. Uh, but rather it's a blessing that I get a chance to get up and do what I was born to do every day. And so as a result of that, uh, I find joy, joy in the great Gordon Cosby, uh, the great pastor, uh, rest his soul of Church of the Savior once noted to me, I was kind of describing to him. And so I was explaining to him how I felt exhausted and tired and you know, the ministry was so hard and I have to sacrifice so much. And Gordon kind of looked at me and says, a son, if the work is not feeding you, you're doing something wrong. Oh no. How that and so <laughs> yeah. and so and and it just lifted a burden for me. I get joy uh out of the work that I do. Not that it's not hard, not that there's not moments where there's sacrifices or financial hardships or anything of that nature. But I get up every morning and I do what I was born to do and I count that as a blessing. Okay, so this is just a whole different line of questioning now because I I could just hear a bunch of pastors listening to you say that going, "Oh my gosh, I I this is hard. This is this is like day to day. I'm having a hard time getting out of bed." As you're a pastor of pastors, what would you say to them as a way to to relieve that burden as you did because that was that was a lot of wisdom in that. You know, part of it is there's religious creatures, particularly those of us who are the clergy class. We tend to take ourselves a lot more seriously than we ought. I think also there is a certain perfectionism that is both embodied uh, or taken on and internalized by religious leaders, as well as their congregations. And so uh, because a lot of times, you know, people are working out their family system stuff on the pastor. And so. Uh, because their father was not idyllic, they need in many instances where it's going to be a man because of the role of patriarchy inside religious institutions uh, in which their religious denominations in 2017 that don't ordain women. And so there's a certain kind of uh, father perfected fathering thing that happens uh, in the context of religious institutions and where you work out those family systems on the body and the ideal of the pastor. And it's just reality, just too much. And so I think that just, just much of it is just, you know, not taking oneself too seriously, being uh, true about their brokenness, uh, attempts to reject various forms of uh, toxic masculinity can all do that. And I don't say that as someone uh, who, uh, you know, has got it all together, you know, much right. of my life, much yeah. of my adult life. I was an alcoholic. Uh, it's a wonder my first wife even still speaks to me. Hmm. Uh, and so I'm not making any claims of, you know, some kind of evolved man, uh, but rather I'm just someone who's struggling and who has struggled to make some sense of, uh, the world in my own image, given the circumstances, not of my own choosing, but attempting to control those things that I can actually control. And so I just, you know, Jesus already came, so you don't have to be anybody's savior. Wow. Your your new album, in, in times like these, 
I was struck by how you chose to open the album. Um, it is a strong start, unlike I've really ever heard on an album, um, because what happens is there is this quote, and I believe, is uh, is it you speaking at the beginning of the album? Yes, it's from a rally at uh, our Ferguson October gathering uh, in 2004. Okay, so what... What you say that makes it it's even even more powerful because you said no matter, no matter what, what you, do, you do, no matter what you say, you can lie on us, you can scandalize our names. We will not bow down. Um, can you tell me who you were talking to and the context of what was happening in Ferguson when you when you said those words? But I think that one of the uh, nature, uh, well, in that particular context, uh, you know, we, there were military forces occupying the streets of Ferguson. Uh, organizers from around the country had gathered to bear witness to our struggle there. Um, and uh, saying to, you know, uh, explicitly and ironically to a Democratic president, to a Democratic governor, to a Democratic, uh, mostly Democratic state officials in uh, Missouri, saying to them that we would not bow down. And so, you know, there were campaigns about we were terrorists. Homeland Security had put out uh, advisories concerning Ferguson October. Uh, You know, many of us had been in jail a number of times. We had been followed. Uh, FBI had come to a few of our homes. And so it was just simply to bear witness that uh, the rebellion that they saw in the streets of Ferguson uh, was not going away. Why did the FBI come to your home? I mean, well, we live in a moment in which, uh, right, that uh, the nature of uh, uh, the nature of black resistance has always been under surveillance. So uh, whether it be the whisper campaigns around Nat Turner, uh, whether it be the bounty on uh, Harriet Tugman's head, whether it be uh, W.B. Du Bois having his passport taken, whether it be the FBI sending uh, secret recordings that they made of uh, Dr. King's yeah. interior life and suggesting that he commit suicide, uh, whether it be uh, the reports of uh, peace activists being um, uh, surveilled in Boston in a church or uh, the peace activists who were surveilled during the second Iraq war, on the second war on the precious people of Iraq, uh, whether it be the, in, uh, the recent suits that revealed that Black Lives Matters was under surveillance from the New York uh, City's uh, uh, police department's intelligence agency uh, uh, to, you know, 200 some odd folks facing potentially life in prison for their protest during the inauguration of, uh, of Donald Trump. And so uh, it's just the way the state has uh, historically functioned in terms of surveilling social movements and attempting to quell and so that is just the nature of the state's machinations uh, in attempts uh, to suppress dissent and to uh, bring a certain kind of quiet to, uh, to those who would dare speak out against hegemony and the empire. Wow. I, I asked that question out of, like, shock and surprise that the FBI would ever, like, investigate you or come to your home. But you rattled off basically all the reasons why it didn't seem like you were surprised at all. No, no, no. It's just the nature of the game. Uh, so, um more recently in August of 2017 you were in Charlottesville and some folks listening to this may have heard we did kind of a a play-by-play of what happened that day with um Reverend Seth Wispoy our friend um can can you tell me from your perspective uh, what what 
what did you see? Why did you go? What what was what happened in Charlottesville like for you? Well, I think that the uh, Charlottesville represents a turning point uh, in terms of America. One, a small town of uh, uh, a small, sleepy southern town became the center of uh, of overt white supremacist behavior uh, and spectacle, and that small town uh, sent them packing, uh, and uh, in which there was a casualty of that war. Uh, Sister Heather, as well as 19 others who were injured. And then, you know, the untold of kind of psychic uh, violence that people experienced by the presence of white supremacists marching through their street under the protection of the state. Uh, For me, uh, Fergus, uh, I'm sorry, Charlottesville, uh, although, you know, one way I've talked about Charlottesville is like uh, a year of Ferguson. compressed into 48 hours oh uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, and so at one level, you know, it's a turning point. It was also a turning point for me in the sense of uh, it broke something inside me. I, uh, I crawled inside of myself and I'm slowly crawling out uh, to come to reckon with uh, the level of hate and vitriol and complicity of the state. Police and military uh, and military uh, National Guard as well as the Virginia State Police stood down while white supremacists attacked people. You alluded to it at the beginning of that answer, but it it would appear as though that there is a movement afoot in the United States. Shooting of innocent African-Americans, you know, hate being spoken by white supremacists are, these things are coming to light and the public outrage is palpable. Um, One, would you agree, I mean, do you, I, I don't want to speak that as if it's true, if it's not. Like, do you agree with this statement? Is there a growing movement happening? I think that, I think that we are in a, a situation whereby we will come to see that, that the unmasking of the hate, which is reflection of a systematic hate through a certain kind of structural violence, whether it be through poverty, decrepit school system, inadequate health care, but I also I see, you know, through organizations like Surge uh, and groups like Congregate, uh, headed by Brother Self and uh, Sister Smash in Charlottesville, where we're seeing a more and more in terms of militant response from uh, white folks in their confrontation with white supremacy. Hey there, I want to interrupt because there is a poignant moment that is about to happen that I've thought about a bunch and... Uh, Really, I mean, the most poignant part of it is Reverend Sekou's answer. But I wanted to share something just sort of a little vulnerable here in that, of course, you know, this show is edited. We have about a 45 minute conversation and I cut it down and we end up hearing 20, 30 minutes of it. And most of the time it's because I spend some of the time just chit-chatting and getting to know the person, but also because I just ask questions poorly and I process verbally and I tidy it up so that you just get the question and our guest's best answer. But in this case, I left my whole messy, awful question in, and I'm saying this to you because there was a purpose. I got nervous during this question, to be honest, because I didn't quite know if I should be asking it. I was kind of dancing around some white guiltish kind of feelings, and just I just wasn't sure how to handle the moment. And 
Reverend Seku, I think, gave me and all of us a lesson both on grace, but also how to have the conversation even when you're not quite sure what to say, in that he responded with grace and kindness. So here is that really super messy question and a thoughtful, graceful, poignant answer. As I have been preparing for this interview, I have found myself um, feeling cautious and even a bit nervous because I feel like in a lot of ways, like a, like a white guy just hasn't earned the right to have this kind of conversation. Um, and so um, I guess my question is, without knowing me personally, from where you sit, I'm curious about what your, your assumptions are about what I just don't understand about your life. Does that make sense? Well, I don't really understand the question. Yeah, uh, yeah it was asked poorly. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know there's a certain kind of fashionability to trash white folks and to put them in their place uh, and for them to submit to black leadership, which I am not opposed to much of the struggle in terms of in the context of the United States, uh, in terms of that, you know, you know, white supremacies affected white folks to such a point that they tend to dominate spaces that they're in or in. But also, I think it's about actually showing up and doing the work. You know, white folks often come to me and say to me, you know, uh, Reverend Seku, you know, they've been to these kind of anti-racist workshops where they read the, the new Jim Crow uh, by the great uh, uh, Michelle Alexander. And they will say to me, you know, I'm anti-racist. And I'll, my next response question to them is that, have you ever been to a black funeral? <sighs> Has somebody ever loved you enough? that when you're putting your mother in the ground, they want somebody, they want you standing next to them. That's a different kind of solidarity. Who do you break bread with? What communities are you in? How are you struggling, struggling alongside folks? Uh, do you know the people you're going to jail with? Have you taken a covered plate to the mother of someone uh, whose child was shot down like a dog by the police? That that's a different kind of qualitative standard. And then also the discourse around allies, I'm terribly suspicious of. Mm. Uh, in part because I think there's an entire cottage industry where people go to these workshops uh, and they learn how not to be racist. My concern is that, our, as the great Ruby Sales says, are you a freedom fighter? Are you willing to put your body on the line for everyday people? Are you willing to lean over at uh, uh, in such a way that you can be in community with people, right? So, because there's a tradition of white folks who do the work, whether it be the great Viola Lazo who laid her life down, James Reed who laid his life down, would it be Bob Zellner who took a beating, right? How are you coming alongside and working with and in community with uh, with people of color that you have authentic and deep relationships? It's not to fetishize people of color. Mm. It's not to say that black folks don't have imperfections and that because that's a part of racism right both low the combination of racism is to have low uh is to have low expectations or unreal expectations meaning that people can never fail nor achieve and that i think one of the ways in which white folks can be in authentic relationships is who we choose to struggle alongside wow that was a poorly asked question and a really thoughtful answer. Thank you uh, for that. Um, how would you, we, we ask this to a lot of our guests, and I think I'm most curious to hear how you'll answer it, but how would you define an activist? Well, I'm not an activist. I'm an organizer. Hmm. And I'll make a difference. Activists tend to be individuals who kind of float from 
uh, uh, space to space and that have a particular kind of role. As an organizer, I'm interested in living among in communities, providing infrastructure and resources that don't necessitate my presence. And so when I leave a city, right, whether it be Minneapolis or Charlottesville or Ferguson for that matter, is that when I leave, I want there to be enough requisite skills for folks to be able to build their own kind of political, social, and existential power that uh, is about shaping the realities of the lives in which they live. Mm. For someone who is listening to this, who you know maybe is you know, 20 years old, in school, just trying to figure out like how they're going to go out and change the world. And they're hearing your story and they're hearing how much you do and how thoughtfully you engage just really huge issues. And right. How, what would you offer for them as just a next step, something they can do now to begin this journey of, you know, being a, a great community organizer? I mean, well, I think the reality is that, right, we live in a moment where there's a certain kind of obsession uh, with this false dichotomy between the academy and the streets. So if you're a college student, you have a certain luxury of the life of the mind that the vast majority of people don't have. And I think it's important for you to honor that luxury. And I would actually argue not privilege, but obligation, right? And that, so because you have the time to sit, think, and write, do your homework, study social movements, figure out ways in which you can come to have a better understanding to reflect and write upon the particular historical moment that we're in that allows you to wrestle critically with the life of the mind and reject that false dichotomy between the life of the mind and the life of the streets, right? And so how do you use the intellectual capital uh, uh, and cultural capital that you receive within the context of the academy to actually impact the quality of people's lives. So in, in a real basic way, I would say do your homework. Well, you know, this is the part of the show where I typically put a little bow on everything and try to kind of send us out with a unified thought. And I think that in the case of this conversation, that would be not helpful because all of us are listening to this from our own worldview, right? Where our culture brings us, where our life brings us, where the messages that we've heard bring us, we are hearing Reverend Seku and probably thinking about a lot. So I will just share what struck me in the face. And again, another little vulnerability moment, but why not? He said, and I wrote it down here in my little journal, he said, have you ever been to a black funeral? Has someone loved you enough that they want you there when they put their mother on the ground. That's a different kind of solidarity. And when he asked the questions, I my answer was no, no to both of them. And so I think that I could sit here and wallow in my own guilt, which maybe is good for a minute, but at the same time, it's probably helpful to think about the people that I'm actually breaking bread with. That's where I'm leaving the conversation and I am grateful to Reverend Seku for being challenging and thoughtful and very kind. If you would like to learn more from Reverend Seku, his website is Reverend Seku, R-E-V-S-E-K-O-U dot com. And I will put a link to this on all of our episode pages and show descriptions. So that you know, the way that people get to hear about the new activist really is through you sharing it. And I am so grateful for all of you who weekly 
Say kind things about the show. Listen to the show. Put quotes up about the show. If you have a moment and you do like the new activist and you feel that these conversations are helpful, if you would do a few things. First, go to our Facebook and Twitter. Both of them are New Activist Is. You can head over there and share the show, share our posts with people. Also, if you can head over to iTunes and rate and review the show, that helps a tremendous amount of people find it. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for helping this little show launch so successfully. You all are awesome. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Reverend Sekou, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission and the relevant podcast network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more Relevant Podcast Network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. Hey guys, I'm Mike Foster from the Fun Therapy Podcast. My first question is for my guests on the Fun Therapy Podcast is always this. What don't you want me to know? And what don't you want to talk about? We dive into the horribly messy parts of life and we find hope and healing and answers and we do it all with a smile. I hope you'll join us for the Fun Therapy Podcast.